This podcast comes to you from the Wondery land. Thank you to elders past, present and emerging. We are privileged to attend school on your lands. Hi, thanks for tuning in to Keeping It Individual at Yarra, Yarra Valley Grammar's individual program department's podcast. Each term we feature a conversation related to the learning needs of students at Yarra. Hope you will like this term's episode. Hi everyone, and welcome to Term 4's episode of Keeping It Individual at Yarra. In this term's episode, we are exploring twice exceptionality. Twice exceptionality, often abbreviated to 2E, is a unique and fascinating intersection of giftedness and learning challenges. 2E students possess extraordinary talents and abilities alongside specific learning differences, making them both a puzzle and an amazing joy. Today, I have the absolute pleasure in chatting to Helen Duddeny. Helen is the Principal Consultant at the Australian Gifted Support Centre located in Sydney. She has walked the path alongside countless 2E students and their families and is a regular presenter at state, national and international conferences on this topic. She has so many insights and practical tips to help you uncover the hidden talents, navigate the challenges and celebrate the brilliance of our many 2E learners at Yarra. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Helen. Hi, and welcome to our Yarra Valley Grammar podcast, Helen. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so thrilled that you're able to join me today. I'm wondering if I could ask you to start to maybe share a little bit about yourself and your extensive experience in working with students with twice exceptionality. Uh, yeah, I'd be pleased to. So I've been working in this field for about 35 years. I originally uh, started uh, working p- primarily with gifted children and that came as a result of finding out that my daughter was um, quite advanced when she was three and trying to sort of understand her. And then as I worked with uh, the New South Wales Gifted Association, I found that many of the families who were getting in touch had very bright children but school wasn't working for them or they weren't working for school. And so through the various training and workshops and seminars that I went to and the parents that I spoke to, I started to learn more about the fact that there might be something else going on and that not all gifted students do well in a school environment or do well academically. And so I went on to uh, do further training in Certificate of Gifted Ed and then I did Masters in Adult Ed, uh, all with the idea of work of understanding these children better and then ran a lot of workshops uh, for children and camps and also seminars for parents and professional development for teachers um, so that we can all perhaps better understand their complex needs. Mm, Absolutely. So what actually is twice exceptionality, Helen? Okay. Um, You've also sort of um, often comes up and sort of people ask, is it a diagnosis? And it's not a diagnosis Mm. because to be a diagnosis, it would have to be probably in the DSM-5. So what it is, it's a description of a person who has one or more diagnosis, one of which is giftedness. Mm -hmm. So if a person had autism and sight impairment, they wouldn't be twice exceptional. Mm -hmm. If they had a high IQ and autism or a high IQ Mm -hmm. and sight impairment or many, many other other conditions, then that's what we call twice exceptional. Uh, Mm -hmm. A better term and a more accurate term is really gifted with a disability or gifted with a learning disability. And in, in Australia, that's actually a more useful term 
because the disability part of the term means that that student is covered by the disabilities legislation and therefore every teaching institution in the country from preschool to tertiary to trade has a federal legal obligation to make appropriate adjustments for that student's disability along with their giftedness. Mm. So is it more of an American term then, twice exceptionality? It has come from America and part of the reason is that they include gifted as an exceptionality. So over there that's a more common use of the term, whereas Mm. here it's really only become more um, common in probably the last five years and Mm. that would be because of um, people from America, like academics and lecturers from America visiting our conferences and also uh, the the textbooks and the uh, research um, from America that also helps inform um, practitioners in Australia about this group of students. Mm. And I know you just touched on, Helen, um, giftedness and autism, giftedness and vision impairment. My understanding, um, and you also alluded to it, that there are many, many different categories or subtypes, I suppose. Could you expand on some of those? Um, It's probably uh, an endless list. Mm. And so probably it's more to think about we've got an identification of advanced or high potential or gifted with this student but we've also got A, B, C, D, X, Y, Z. We've got autism, vision impairment, sensory motor issues, um, cerebral palsy, uh, ADHD, anxiety, depression, um, myriad of different other things. And so in essence, twice exceptional is when we've got a gifted person who has something else that's getting in the way of them being able to develop that potential. Mm. And how common is it, Helen? Uh, again, I would, there aren't good statistics, uh, mm. partly because most people don't know a lot about it. And there's such a masking effect. Either the high ability masks the weakness or the weakness masks the disability and the child looks um, average or looks mm. like they've got behavioural issues. And so people don't pick up the other part of it. So the, the bright child who perhaps has executive functioning weakness is often seen as average or not trying hard enough or unmotivated or lazy or the child who has high ability but dyslexia, so has trouble stringing a sentence together, has weakness in spelling, doesn't demonstrate anything that someone who doesn't have understanding of this group of uh, the population would see as gifted. They can't even write a sentence. Mm, Um, mm. They can't even spell basic words. It doesn't Mm. make sense. It's sort of counterintuitive to what people often think of with gifted. Yeah, and that that would lead into um, all of those misconceptions that you've just touched on there about being lazy, et cetera. What, What are some of the other misconceptions that this group faces every day at school? Um. It varies a lot depending on what the um, other uh, condition is. Mm. And so, for, for instance, with girls, girls who are clever but perhaps have inattentive ADHD are often 
those who are quietly daydreaming their life away in the back of the classroom. Boys often as well, if they've got inattentive ADHD, it's sometimes also called passive inattentive because we don't necessarily see it. And so they, they produce average. Often they produce well above average. I've had gifted kids who are sitting on the 90th percentile, but nobody realises how hard they've got to work mm. because they're working against dyslexia or vision issues or executive functioning issues. Mm. And so that becomes a little bit difficult. Um, the lazy is a really useful one. I often say to teachers or parents, if ever the word lazy has bounced through your head about a student, use it as a red flag. The reason being is if we have a low ability student who isn't doing very well, we would never think to call them lazy. Mm. The only reason that we think to call someone lazy is because we have some idea or inkling that there is more to them than, that we're, than we're seeing. Mm. So there's this disparity, this under underperformance, and that's why it seems like, well, they just, they're not interested, they're not motivated, they're lazy. Um, mm. da- dads are often a good one for throwing that line out about their sons. Mm. Um, is that because more weight is put on someone's IQ as compared to other aspects of their of their profile so as soon as you see an IQ that's 130 and above that is just seen as um yeah I guess holding more weight would that be um, how some of these misconceptions come about I think it could be but in actual fact the bulk of twice exceptional students will never have an IQ test right the bulk of students will never have an IQ test because they're expensive and time consuming and many families don't have access to that uh, but, yes, I think that once people, if they do have an IQ, then they sort of look at the typical, well, if you've got a high IQ, you're going to be good at X, Y or Z. And so I think that can or be. everything. Or, you're going to be good at everything. Yes. Forgetting yeah. that IQ only tests intellectual ability, doesn't test creativity right. or any of those other things. Um, sometimes it's they're not motivated or they're not trying hard enough. And I think we have to um, also remember that just because you're very clever, it doesn't mean that you are going to be to enjoy maths or enjoy literacy. You might be good at it, but you still may not enjoy it. And so you may not have this um, intrinsic drive to do more advanced maths or to write massive stories because your passion is in a different direction. And some gifted people won't find their their true area of giftedness till they're 30, 40, 50, 60. Mm. Um, because not all aspects of giftedness are the same as the school curriculum. Mm. So I think that... So I could imagine, though, these kids bring some incredible strengths to school, though. What what are some of the really important strengths that they do bring to school? Uh, they're often big picture thinkers, uh, very creative, think outside the box, Sometimes gifted students will have developed amazing capacities for uh, perseverance. If they're doing average or above average, but they've actually got dyslexia, then they've had to work really, really hard, harder than anyone else in the classroom to do what they're doing. And so that sort of work ethic and and, um, perseverance can be a really strong characteristic. Mm. 
Sometimes they develop really good leadership skills. They're often good verbal communicators, but not necessarily written communicators. Mm. If they're on the spectrum, then they very possibly won't show strong social emotional um, capacities, but they might have amazing attention for detail. Mm. In their areas of passion or strength, they often have amazing concentration. Even kids with ADHD and automatically people think, oh, that's an attention problem. And it's not really an attention problem as such. It's the inability to attend to what you should attend to and Mm. block out the other things. Mm. And that in a classroom is really tricky. I should be listening to the teacher talking, but I can hear the scraping of the chair of the kid next to me or the lawn being mowed or I can smell the smell of the BO after we've come in after lunch And if you've got heightened sensitivities in one of those sensory areas and that inability for for executive functioning to focus on what you should and miss what you shouldn't, then Mm. that makes it really tricky. tricky. Likewise, if you're doing something that is in your strength and passion area, maybe you are writing that story or working on a complex maths problem, then you can be so totally focused that you don't actually hear the bell ring or the teachers say that it's time to put that, finish that and move on to something else. Mm. And I know we'll yeah. talk a bit about strategies a bit later on, but that's one of the things that I encourage teachers to try to do. If they've got a student who really just struggles to focus and on this particular day for this particular task they're really focusing, is think, is there any way I can let them keep going let them enjoy this being in flow yeah. so that they get that, the child gets the satisfaction and also the teacher gets to see what they can really do. Mm. You've got a really complex brain. It doesn't engage if you're only working on superficial stuff. Mm. And because of the mismatch of the weakness and strengths, often these kids are less good at things like rote learning of times table, spelling, grammar, which means that they end up spending a lot of their time on the secretarial side of literacy and numeracy and never get into the creative problem-solving side. Mm. And so sometimes it can be as simple as um, sort of giving them a chance to use a keyboard so that they don't have to worry about the spelling, using... Mm. um, voice recognition software, having someone else type down what they're saying and let them edit it afterwards, giving them a calculator. In maths, letting them do the problems first rather than the computation because if you can get the problem right, then you knew how, you know how to do the computation. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's, think, it's for the educator to think outside the square. Mm. Um, At Yarra, sorry. At Yarra, we've got, um, I would say, um, many. um, I would say many of our students that you could consider as being twice exceptional would be neurodivergent. So gifted plus neurodivergent. And you just touched on then about some of the social challenges which we know come along with being neurodivergent. How does that interact then with giftedness? Or would we be expecting just similar difficulties regardless of IQ in that social space? Well, I guess the neurodivergence is such a spectrum as well. 
So you have sort of mildly through to um, extremely, say, on the spectrum, for instance, mm-hmm. or the impacts of ADHD. And so they will be different. Often because gifted, gifted people can think in a more complex, abstract way, they may be analysing what's going wrong with the social-emotional situation than someone who perhaps isn't as complex in their thinking. So, for instance, there may be a child with an IQ of 80 compared to a child with an IQ of 120 will be reading the social situation differently and perhaps be more impacted by not having friends or not having kids mm-hmm. that they, they get along with. I think that... Uh, knowing the sort of things that trigger the uh, neurodiversity. So it's, it's often sensory. Uh, it's mm. often too, the groups that are too big, too much um, overload, and trying to create uh, environments where those um, overloads are reduced can be helpful. And I think a big mm. one, particularly with pe- people on the spectrum, is not to assume that, if we work hard enough, they'll get better because they're not sick. They're no, just and I think our thinking is really shifting away from that now where we're not trying to fix neurodivergence, which perhaps was our common um, practice frameworks from, yep. you know, 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago, and that, yeah, we're not trying to fix this, but we're still trying to make school an enjoyable place to be whatever that looks like for a neurodivergent student and I guess um, I like how you're talking about how um, a neurodivergent student with a higher IQ would be thinking perhaps um, and internalizing some of the social challenges differently to a student whose IQ is on the lower end or in the lower end of average Um, and I guess using that as a way of trying to make school an enjoyable an enjoyable place without them feeling like they're broken or we need yeah. to fix them. I think too it's really important to remember that there's all aspects of a gifted student are likely, well, many aspects of the way they look at the world are likely to be advanced. And so they're likely to have more in common with children who are older than them. Mm. And yep. so um, creating opportunities in the, within the school where kids um, get together because of common interests rather than common age yeah, that's a good point. And that many um, gifted kids uh, and then also many kids on the spectrum would be towards the introversion end of the spectrum. And so remembering that for introverts, being with people is draining. Mm-hmm. Uh, for extroverts, being with people is energising. Uh, and often as adults when we see kids who aren't f- fitting in socially, we go out of our way to make them make connections. And I think that sometimes the reason that in the playground or during recess and lunch, uh, gifted students who are introverts or kids on the spectrum or kids with ADHD who are in overload will choose to be by themselves is because it's the part of the day where they have a choice. Mm. And if they don't rekindle and get that energy they're not going to have the energy for the next section where they have no choice but to interact with others. So I think Mm. sometimes it's just asking the question, are you happy sitting, reading by yourself or spending your lunchtime in the library or would you like to find someone to play with? Mm. And very often they'll say, no, I'm very happy. 
and then you respect that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. Helen, are there any um, different things that we might need to consider in regards to age? So we have students at Yarra Valley from the age of three up to 18. Yes. Um, are there any different considerations that our ELC teachers might have in this space compared to our primary teachers, compared to our secondary teachers? Um, my understanding of sort of the way ESLC teachers work, I think they're probably the most experienced at observing individual children and what they're doing and how they're doing it. And if we tend to get less and less good at that until we get to university where it's just a lecture full of 500 people. So I think that the fact that they're actually honing in on things is important. I think in all cases, not expecting that a child is going to only be able to do what you expect a child of that age to do. So lifting the lid on expectation uh, so that they get to show what they can do. So I guess in primary school and high school, to me, one of the really useful tools is to do, and I think this is useful for every student in every class, is to do um, formative assessment or pre-testing before starting learning. And when I talk about that sort of pre-testing, I mean thinking about what you're about to teach and doing an activity that assesses what do, what do any of my students know that I expect them to know at the end of this unit. Now, incorporated in that, you also want to have part of the activity assessing what are the building blocks they need in order to do this task. But what you're trying to do is find out which kids in the classroom do not need my standard instruction, do not need the number of repetitions to be able to master it. And in examples that I've seen where students, um, uni students have done this as a... Um, as an assignment um, when they were doing gifted units, up to 25% of, say, Year 5 class, and the examples I'm thinking of were maths, knew everything. They could get 25% of the kids could get 75% on a Year 5 end-of-year assessment on day one of Year 5. So 25% yeah. of those kids could have been wasting the bulk of the year if that hadn't been done. And that can happen mm. in any subject area. And then mm. if you get 25% who knows 75% plus, we still don't know what they know, so we need to do something further. And sometimes kids are three or four years ahead. So mm. I think that that's always an important thing. Let's find out where they're at and what they already know. Uh, and if you've got a child who has a writing impairment, we're not going to obviously do a test that requires them to write to find out what they know. We need to do it orally or get them to draw or get them to do something on video or make a model. Mm. I think with the early childhood, of course, with, with generally pre-written literacy, so it's observing tasks and looking for things like um, thinking outside the box, problem solving, um, the types of associations that they make, Something that um, John Munro, who's in a Melbourne um, academic, he has been working on using mind maps as a way of assessing gifted. 
and looking at the um, trying to sort of, I guess, measure or quantify how the complexity of a mind map to give mm-hmm. you an idea of what are the levels of thinking of a student. Now, that can be incorporated throughout. Mm-hmm. It can be incorporated in from, say, from kindergarten or year one or even, even early childhood in getting kids to draw, and this is an activity I often draw, to get them to draw a concept with no words, mm-hmm. which, of course, the little ones can't use words anyway. I mean, they can't write words, most of them anyway. But yeah. even at university level, which is where I first learned it, we had to, we had to um, draw, draw communication. And you get a really good idea of what type of thinking a person has when you see the type of representations, you just have to get them, the older kids through the, the the thing of it doesn't have to be good drawings. Mm, but little kids, yeah. I mean, that's no problem at all with little kids. They think all their yeah. drawings are good. <laughs> um, so they would be some of the areas. Um, mm. Grouping kids as kids get older, grouping likeability kids. So mm. uh, every school groups their students differently if they've got multi, if they're multi-stage, a multi-class. But one of the best I think I've seen is to cluster group. So if you've got say two classes or three classes, you look and so you might decide you're looking at maths because you've got a very able group of maths kids in that class. So you don't put half the most able uh, maths kids in this group and half in that group. You put the whole group of most able kids up to six or eight. Mm-hmm. Um, with preferably in the primary, if you've got one teacher doing multiple subjects, with the teacher who has a bent for maths. Mm. And so you've got a whole group to program for, which makes sense. Mm. Uh, also, sometimes a strategy that's used for bright kids is they get to do differentiated work. So they're in their mainstream mm. classroom, but instead of doing this maths work, because we know they already know it, they get to do this activity. Mm. The fun part of learning is the learning with others, the bouncing off the interaction. Doing a spreadsheet, like a worksheet by yourself, isn't the fun part of learning. Mm. And so kids eventually get sick of it. Yeah. And they'll either make mistakes to get back in the group or just refuse to do it. Whereas if you've got a group who are working together on that more abstract activity, you get that satisfaction and, and pleasure of bouncing your ideas, which is a critical part of learning. Mm. So do you think um, we, we do have some extension type um, programs? Should these kids be considered or, or part of that? What, what are your thoughts around that? I would always say that the first thing you do is you respond to their strength. Mm-hmm. And then if there's an area of weakness, you work out, how are we going to accommodate that weakness so that yeah. their strength can be developed as if they didn't have the weakness, which is exactly what the disabilities legislation says the law is. We've got to make things accessible to kids so that they can access their learning as if they didn't have, as as children without that, without that disability can. Yeah. So it's using scribes, it's using calculators if it's maths, um, uh, voice recognition software. The, the child who's got the most creative imagination but has dyslexia should be in the creative writing group with appropriate mm-hmm. tools. 
Yeah. Um, teaching all kids to touch type properly if they don't have motor issues is wonderful because that can get them over some of the areas that will drag them down. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, remembering that often kids with executive functioning weakness, which is basically what ADHD is, and kids on the spectrum, kids with dys- dyslexia, all have executive functioning weakness, or some component of it. Mm. Often components of that are poor working memory and slow processing speed. Yep. So if we put a child with slow processing speed into the creative writing group, it is not logical to expect that they will finish their work as quickly as the child who doesn't have slow working processing speed. And so we need to be careful not to then say this is the wrong group for you because you're not Mm. getting the work done. Yeah. So it's, it's knowing what the weaknesses are and then saying, okay, but we're not going to judge you on your weakness as to whether or not this program is the right program for you. Mm, yeah, for sure. Now, Helen, you've mentioned many, many strategies as we've sort of gone through our conversation today. Are there any other strategies that you might not have mentioned so far that are also really important for us to consider? Um, yes, it sort of goes back to what I mentioned before. It depends on the weakness. So mm-hmm. if it's to do with vision, then think about where you sit them in the classroom. Um, including, I mean, logically you say, okay, we'll sit them closer to the front or closer to where I teach from or closer where the board is. But also remembering that many of us use whiteboards or screens, glare can be a huge problem. And so it's also thinking about what the glare like is like. Overhead lights, I've had kids who found that a problem and so they just wore their baseball cap in class so they didn't have the glare on their, their face. Uh, if it's auditory, then knowing that a noisy classroom is going to make it hard for them to concentrate and what the auditory system does if it's in overload is it shuts down. So ensuring that if you're giving auditory instructions, you're also writing them on the board. Mm. Now, kids with huge attention problems might forget that you write them on the board and you might have to go and remind them. Knowing your, knowing your students well, knowing the ones who have weak working memory, and so by the time they get, if they've been sitting in a group and they get back to their desks to start working, they will have forgotten what you've asked them to do, not because they're naughty, just because that's the way their memory works. And so just doing a touch base, wandering around the class and touch base and just say, Sally, you know, what, what, what are we going to do next? Just in a really gentle way because they pick up on emotion really well and if you show how you're frustrated or annoyed you are because this is the 17th time you've done it that day, they will pick up on that. And what mm. they can then do to develop is a learned helplessness, which is basically no matter how hard I try, I can't do what they expect me to do. I must be dumb. I must be stupid. When, of course, that's exactly not what, not what they are. Routines and boundaries can be useful, especially for kids on the spectrum, but also kids with ADHD. Knowing what's expected can be helpful um, and also knowing that if you've got kids on the spectrum and you have the routine and it's going to change, you need to give them as much warning as possible. Um, remediate weaknesses. So it's not just a matter of feeding the strength and giving them touch typing. Um, if they've got problems with literacy and um, dyslexia, then Explicit teaching, 
a phonemic teaching is really important um, and different school systems have addressed that differently over the last 10 years and while I'm not sure what Yara is doing now in your junior school but you're seeing I'm very school. much a science of reading school I promise Helen <laughs> yes. but by the time by the when you think of the students you've got in your senior school they've possibly come through mm-hmm. either not necessarily from your own school but from theater schools through Correct. the myriad of literacy approaches that have happened very true yeah and again if they're bright it may not have even been picked up that they've got dyslexia because they're doing okay. Mm. Um, their spelling's okay. Their writing's okay. But it could be quite different. So mm. um, sort of realising that some of the weaknesses uh, need to be um, expanded. I spoke about understanding the sensory diet that they might need, that the sensory mm. overload of the environment can be tricky. Thinking of where you place where they are placed in the classroom. Um, often the well-behaved, clever girls get sat with all the bouncy boys and find that really, really hard. Knowing that some kids would prefer to sit by themselves, I often had children say, if I could just sit at a table by myself. Um, I often suggest if the classrooms are big enough that around, and this can be for senior as well as junior, around the walls you have five or six tables that are called focus tables or concentration tables or learning tables, and they're available to anybody who feels that that they would be able to do this piece of work better if they go and sit at one of these focus tables. Initially, everyone will want to have a go. Ultimately, it will only be the kids who need it who are likely to use them. And what it, but what it does, because you could probably identify those five kids and say, oh, you say I've sit at these tables, that points them out as being different. Using it the other way, what it does is it says it's normal in our classroom for different people to want to work differently at different times. And mm-hmm. so it's okay for everybody. It's a very inclusive approach. If there's kids who need fiddle toys, have a whole bunch available for anyone who wants to try them. Again, the ones who don't need them will forget to pick them up after a day or two. And the ones who do will feel welcome and accepted um, in in that sort of environment. Uh, When kids are bright, often asking them how they would like to approach that learning, especially if you find that they've already tested out, they know bulk of what you're um, you're about to teach, asking, mm-hmm. you seem to know a lot about space and we're going to be sort of concentrating on planets. What is it that you'd like to learn more about? Because I can see that you already have a great understanding about planets and allow them to give a guide. So it still relates to the topic. It's not some random project that doesn't have any connection, um, but it allows them to think about exploring how they can further that particular topic area. Mm. Um, one really important thing I think that we can uh, give our students is the ability to self-advocate, to help them understand themselves and what it is that works for them and also to build their confidence to be able to go up to a teacher that they haven't met before or a casual and say, this is what I need for my learning. 
And part of that is helping them to become very, very brave because mm. it's a very tricky thing to do. So I think that that can be huge because they'll need to self-advocate for the rest of their lives. Even in their workplace, they're still going to be the person that they are. And yeah. helping them understand themselves, like themselves, and be able to express what works for them I think is huge. Excellent. Some great suggestions there. That's lots of different things to consider. Um, just my final question, Helen, where would you suggest teachers go for further information if they do happen to have a 2E student in their class and they would just like to learn more about it or learn a bit more about strategies that might assist? Where, where would you suggest they go? Um, I would uh, The child's parent, find mm-hmm. out what's going on at home, what are their interests, uh, if there are behavioural aspects to the exceptionality, find out what strategies parents have found successful at home. Uh, know that parents know their, their children best. There are on my website, I've actually got about four or five uh, short two and three hour webinar type training sessions that I developed during COVID and mm-hmm. they're on um, visual spatial thinkers, including ADHD, autism and dyslexia, one on executive functioning uh, that I know you've already done some work on executive functioning, but there's a, a webinar on that. I've also got an ebook on that, which has got this packed full of strategies. Mm-hmm. There's also on identification of gifted, more straight gifted. Uh, some of the universities have short courses. Uh, there's a, a company in New Zealand. They used to be called Reach Education, but I think they've changed their name, and they offer um, a quite intense course on gifted uh, mm-hmm. that is run with tutors and it's over a period of time. There's mm-hmm. a website called the Gifted Development Centre, which is based in Colorado. They have a lot of resources on their website. Mm-hmm. Um, on my website probably has a few other resources as well. Can you tell us your website address, Helen, just so that uh, everyone's aware? Yes, so it's www.australiangiftedsupport.com. Beautiful. Uh, There are, and also I would then look at information for whatever the weakness is and then strategies for gifted and think, okay, I've got this child and they've got some of this and they've got some of this which of these strategies seem to make sense for this child that I know? Uh, I would also recommend Sulaki's webinars. Mm-hmm. Um, she specialises in autism, but also mm-hmm. um, ADHD and opposition defiance. Uh, they're some of the best webinars I've ever done. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't done them or if you're, any of you haven't done them, then they're uh, worth very well worth looking at and they're relatively inexpensive. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Helen. That's a really thorough list of places to go, which is most helpful. Um, I just wanted to say a very huge thank you for joining me and chatting through this really interesting topic today. Um, As I mentioned, we've got numerous students at Yarra Valley that would fit this profile, and I'm sure people listening are, you know, finding some of your information incredibly useful in supporting those kids. So thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in and learning a thing or two about how to support all learners at our great school. Make sure you tune into the next episode. 
Goodbye.